Hello and welcome back everyone to this week's episode of the No Normal Show brought to you by Revive. This is where we leave all things status quo, traditional, old school, and boring in the dust to celebrate the new, the powerful, the innovative, the future, all related to how brands can lead the way in health. I'm your co-host, Stephanie Weirwell, EVP of Integrated Marketing here at Revive. And I'm also joined, as always, by co-host Chris Wickline, SVP of Strategy here at Revive. We have a very exciting guest on today's show. We are back in the studio with Dr. James Jarvis. Dr. Jarvis is the family physician and faculty teacher at Northern Light Eastern Maine Medical Center. And this is a two-part series. We are on part two. We did part one a few weeks ago. Go check it out if you didn't get a chance to listen to it. This is part two with Dr. Jarvis. We're discussing the future of primary care, and it is so good to be back in the studio with you all. Last time, we chatted about so much good stuff. The role of primary care in healthcare, the continued increase of physician staffing shortages, what daily life looks like for PCPs, and where we left off last time was actually a chat about technology in the lives of physicians. Is it helpful or nah? Actually, Dr. Jarvis shared the side of the story that I think it's very little airtime these days. That EMR specifically, but technology overall, really helps with patient-to-physician communication. And it was so refreshing to hear that side of the story. Yes, there are challenges, but overall, when you look back over the last several decades of primary care, advances in tech have actually brought patients and physicians closer because they can com communicate anytime, day or night, because it helps physicians keep up with life-saving screenings, vaccinations, and more. And so that was a really nice um, way to wrap up the show last time we chatted, just all about ways that physicians and patients can communicate uh, better and better. So maybe we pick off right there. Chris, why don't you why don't you pick us up? So speaking of communication, I'm going to tee something up. I know that Stephanie is going to love this because Stephanie is our AI queen. She's all over AI. And I'm betting, because um, it's made some real waves recently in the healthcare trades around the experimentation with AI being used to help physicians respond to the routine, uh, the routine questions that their patients may pose to them. So there's some interesting pilots happening in the industry most recently. I think Epic announced some pilots with some um, some particular health systems. So curious about kind of your take on how you see tech being able to help and or, you know, um, concerns of, of, of AI in, um, in your world and in patient relationships. So in full disclosure, I was one of the very first people to have an, have an Amazon Alexa in my house. Um, I have a daughter whose name is Alexa and uh, and I'm I, and uh, unfortunately, when Amazon Alexa came out, my daughter was being treated for cancer. Um, and so we have a very uh, we, we have a, 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 a very warped sense of reality in my family. Um, and we use a lot of dark humor. And um, uh, my daughter is doing very well now. But at the time, you know, we, we didn't know where she was going. And I said, look, I just bought a robot that's named Alexa. So just in case things don't go well, we have a replacement. Sounds very morbid. But I can tell you that it, it, that kind of humor helped us through the tough times. And like I said, my daughter is very is doing well. She just graduated college and very successful. And I'm very proud of her. Um, but I'm so I'm very much into tech and that kind of thing. I have a very my I have a very smart house right now. Um, can you know control just about everything with voice? Um, so I think there's some advantages there. 
I think we're not there yet, though. I think, uh, you know, recent data has shown that, yes, indeed, uh, while, while um, uh, chat boxes can, can go ahead and pass licensure exams to be medicine, when you actually start having that interaction, they've missed the boat more often than not. Um, and I think that's a challenge for us. But I do think there are some things that can help us. You know, we do know that, uh, you know, uh, having interactive um, messaging centers would help healthcare a lot, right? So if you called and you just simply said, just like you do if you're doing banking or something else, and it says, what are you calling for? And they say, well, I'm calling to make an appointment that it puts you in the right line, or I have a question about my medications, it puts you in a different line. Um, I think that's where AI right now, that's where its level of expertise should be utilized in healthcare. I think for diagnoses, though, um, it, it, it's, it's going to be problematic for a while. Why? Because we do, there is that human factor. Like I said, I picked up on cues from my patient that this wasn't just a normal, abnormal lab. There was something else there that made me want to look for something else. Um, there's no way that AI can do that at this point because they won't have that kind of information. But it can be great for predictive analysis. Um, you know, so there is, you know, if we could look at, so let's just say, talk about heart failure. We know that there are lots of things that happen with individuals prior to them being diagnosed with heart failure. If we could have AI collect all the information out there and look backwards from everybody who's been diagnosed with heart failure and say, oh, well, a year before that, they had this complaint. And two years before that, this happened. And five years before that, this happened. Then we can start looking at individuals who now five years from now and say, listen, we just picked up on this. It doesn't mean you're going to have heart failure, but it means that you might be headed in that direction. Here's some things that you can course correct in your life so that we can make that risk as small as possible. We do that a lot with things like cancer screening, diabetes screening, hypertension screening, but we can't do that for these major problems that people have. And maybe that is a good place where we can start with AI. I'd rather see us using that for, for doing large data analysis and doing predictive analysis than using it as somebody calls and has no idea whether they're talking to a person or a chatbot, and, uh, and that chatbot then makes a diagnostic um, uh, you know, decision that may or may not be correct because it doesn't have all the information. Yes. So this is really timely, especially because we've been passing around this morning a little bit of news that's come out in the most recent days about folks who are turning to ChatGPT for medical discussions and specifically therapy and mental health. And there's been some stats that have come out that when when uh, those discussions with ChatGPT are related to suicide or suicidal ideation, that only in 22% of the cases, it's even responding with critical life-saving resources or encouraging people to reach out to a 1-800 number or things like that. So that's maybe, maybe feels like an extreme example, but it is very scary to think about. We've, we've seen misinformation and the massive expansion of misinformation given social media's uh, influence in the last five, seven years. And now we're introducing these tools that allow people to potentially have conversations that could lead them to expect a diagnosis. So it's just, it's very scary. And yet there are, you know, interesting promises of, of AI as well. Um, I'm curious if you've, have you seen or heard of any patients that are yet talking about, of course, using Dr. Google, I would imagine, and Dr. Facebook, but I don't know if you've heard yet patients talking about Dr. GPT. Yeah, personally, I have not. Um, but, you know, you have to remember where your source of information comes from. So as a physician, I went through four years of college, four years of medical school, three years of residency, and then uh, two fellowship programs. 
Um, so that's my that's where my education level is. My experience, of course, is 30 years that I've been a physician. I can't believe that it's been 30 years now, but it is. Um, and, uh, um, and then you think about, well, where, do, where does ChatGPT for, in particular get its information from? Well, it gets it from, from what it perceives of the world through social media and Google searches and, you know, the internet, and it takes that information. Now it tries to categorize, okay, well, this is from a respected source, this is not, but how well does it do that? And so when you start talking about the intricacies of things, it just takes one misstep to think, oh, that, that, that thing that you just mentioned about that you're giving away some of your prized possessions to your friends, it missed that that's actually a telltale clue that you're more than just contemplating suicide. You may have a plan already. And so that's an excellent example of where the dangers might be, where somebody who's been trained and doing this for a long time, here's that one thing and it doesn't just kind of say, oh, well, that's, that's really nice of you, which is kind of what ChatGPT has been doing, you know, it, it's the reason why it's been rated more empathetic than than a human person because its responses almost always are pleasant, and sometimes pleasant responses are not what I do for a living. Um, you know, I have to tell patients that they have something wrong with them. That's not always a pleasant conversation, and so uh, I think you know, while while certainly I think doctors should be as empathetic as they can and, and do things in a way to understand the emotional response to what they're saying, sometimes we have to be direct. And I fear that the, the mechanisms behind AI are making it so that they've smoothed out those rough edges so the directness isn't heard. And sometimes you have to hear, you have diabetes, you have cancer, your mom has dementia, um, direct like that rather than the soft-spoken Oh, it sounds like you're having a wonderful day. And oh, by the way, have you noticed that mom's a little more forgetful? Sometimes you have to have that direct response. Yes, that that is so interesting to think about how our user interfaces and you know algorithms are all built around what we want, not what we need, right? And so as AI develops, it'll be really important to think about what do, what do people need versus what do they want to hear. But but you're right. I mean, we've seen those 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 um, studies too that show that ChatGPT is is more empathetic, and it's not necessarily the right thing or a good thing. Um. This is this is fascinating. I mean, I I do love this topic, as Chris said, but maybe we shift just a little bit because you've mentioned over the course of our discussion so far uh, a lot of really rich notes around one of the really important roles of of primary care and family medicine is to identify early people's risk factors and help them prevent things that may come down the line, and also to to be able to refer to specialists when the when the time is needed. But I would love to talk about prevention because it is it is certainly a, a hot topic in the in the field right now. I've even heard terms thrown around like medical medicine 3.0, you know, and and the need to be really leading that conversation about prevention and having that relationship with with patients in a world where we're seeing a lot more sort of demand and desire from consumers for wellness content, for health coaches, um, and you know, for that that kind of service. So I would just love to hear your perspective. Um, on prevention and the challenges too with with that with patients. Yeah, so I think there are some things that people are very very welcome to have. Um, you know, a lot most people would would say, oh, if you're just going to prick my finger and let me know what my cholesterol is, I'm open to that. Uh, a colonoscopy, I don't think I want that. Um, and so I, I think there needs to be more discussion about that. One. Again, technology has advanced to the point that the gruesome colonoscopy or, or frankly, rigid proctoscope that our grandparents got doesn't exist anymore. 
that colonoscopy, uh, the prep for it is not as, as horrible as uh, is often made out on television series uh, or what you heard again that your parents or grandparents went through. Um, I always tell people that the best nap I ever had was the day I had my colonoscopy. Um, the prep wasn't terrible uh, and, and I can assure you that the first ed was wonderful. Um, and so, uh, you know, and then it was, it was reassuring to me to hear, hey, thankfully I had a clean colon. But equally, if they had told me that I had a, a cancerous polyp and they removed it and now I just need to have surveillance, that's way better than later on having the diagnosis of colon cancer. And so I think, you know, those are the kind of discussions that, again, sometimes you want a, a respected, trusted, friendly voice that can kind of go through those things for you. Um, unfortunately, in the realm of colon cancer right now, while we have made remarkable strides in eliminating colon cancer deaths from older individuals, we are seeing now an increase in younger individuals with colon cancer and dying from them. Why? Because we weren't screening them and they're reluctant to get screened even when we say that, that the recommendation now is to start screening at 45 instead of 50. Um, I think those are things that, that really we need to have those conversations uh, um, and, it, and it really... Uh, becomes a conversation that that's an important one. I reflect back when we first came out with the HPV vaccine. Um, I, 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 at the time I was practicing in South Carolina, there was certainly a, a religious influence to a lot of aspects of people's lives. And I remember one of my nurses coming to me and saying, hey, listen, you know, I don't expect that my daughter's gonna be sleeping around or anything like that. And so why should she get the HPV vaccine? She's at really no risk for, for, getting, you know, for getting cervical cancer. And yet here's a vaccine that prevents cancer. I mean, how remarkable is that? And I said to her, I go, you know, it's not about your daughter but you don't know who it is that she's gonna fall in love with and you can't control who it is that she falls in love with. And what if she falls in love with somebody who that was not their, their life before and that they do spread HPV to her and now, now she has um, needs to get more frequent cervical checks, needs to get a colposcopy done every single year, that invasive procedure, or worse yet, gets cervical cancer when you could have prevented that when she was in her teens by getting her vaccinated. And she went, you're exactly right. I can't control who my daughter falls in love with. And the next day, she and her daughter had a conversation and they came in, she got her HPV vaccine, you know. And so there's a prevention that could that that might not have happened if you just kind of kept in your narrow scope of where you're at. And I think there are other people who kind of think the same way about uh, different preventative things. You know, no one in my family's ever had breast cancer. Well, still one in nine women, one in eight women will develop breast cancer sometime in their life. That goes against family family history. And so you need to get your mammograms done in a timely fashion when it's appropriate. Similarly, uh, getting getting your colon cancer screening, making sure you're doing a good skin check and, and doing all the preventative things to prevent skin cancer. I think those are things that, again, you hear that from a respected uh, voice that you feel comfortable with. It sounds a little bit different than seeing the advertisement on television says you need to go and get that when you're scared about what the results might be, or you're just scared that maybe you already have that cancer and you just don't wanna know. And then we can reassure you, but if, if you do and we catch it early, your uh, chances of success now with the way technology is, is so much better than it was for just about every single cancer we had in the past. Yeah. Wow. That, that is, that is so, so, so important. And it's so important um, to get that information out there, but also help people see the bigger picture. I think that's sort of one of the roles of, of, of healthcare marketers as well uh, in the seat that we sit in, as we think about how do we get the word out about screenings and how do we get the word out about primary care and, and prevention? It is so, so important to get into folks' head and try to figure out what are the biases that are, that are, that are keeping them, you know, from, from understanding it. So, um, um, it's absolutely, you know, the world that we live in every day. Um, 
Chris, do you want to do you want to kind of uh, take us to our, our our last couple questions as we as we wrap up here? I think you know what 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 we have um, been talking a lot about the last couple of years, and particularly as you see new entrants in primary care, you see health systems scrambling for primary care. There's a real race for those top of funnel, what we would call top of funnel patient relationships, because it really is kind of the key to downstream specialty care. I'd be curious to hear your perspective. I mean, of course, you know, primary care is a key to just human wellness, right? But from a business point of view um, in, in healthcare, how important is that relationship or how do you see that relationship and that the primary care relationship that we hold with consumers? Yeah, so so it's multifactorial. I will say just from a, from a global economic sense for the United States, preventative care is far better than doing acute, acute and chronic care management. If we prevent disease, we save a whole lot money from our healthcare system, which we know will run us into bankruptcy if it has not already. Um, and so I think focusing in on that and that message, that preventative care, not waiting till it's too late is an important message. I think for health systems and the health and the general health system in the United States, we also have to remember that primary care is what funnels things to everything else that that churns the engine for economic drivers for healthcare. And whether they're for-profit or not-for-profit entities, there's still an economic engine that has to be driven there. And primary care helps to do that. One, it almost always has been, you know, it's been shown multiple times that every family physician makes a million dollars for their healthcare entity, where most specialists specialists actually lose a million dollars. It just doesn't look that way because one charges a whole lot more money than the other. But truthfully, we know that there are certain care that unfortunately we can never recoup the costs for, um, particularly things like trauma and stuff like that. Um, it's just the way that the, the system is set up. Um, I, I often joked uh, to my colleagues in family medicine that every family physician just use just prescribing a statin to their patients probably saved more lives than any any cardiothoracic surgeon ever did. Yet cardiothoracic surgeons are constantly given donations by people because they say you saved my life, right? Because I was having a heart attack and you did that bypass surgery for me. Um, very few family physicians get that same recognition for prescribing a statin because it just doesn't seem like it's as important. Yet we know that statins have saved countless lives. Um, by never having the heart disease that happens when you have high cholesterol. And so I think, you know, those are the kind of things. But I didn't go in into medicine for the fame, and I don't think any of my colleagues did as well. We went in it for the end result, which is to see our patients happy and healthy and see them, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm still amazed. I still hear from from families of babies that I delivered many years later. In fact, there's one family that every single year on their birthday reminds me that I delivered him. He is now a college graduate. And um, it hurts a little bit, but it's but it's so joyful to have that, which is why I went into family medicine in the first place. Um, you know, I wanted that spectrum of care. I wanted to make a difference, not just in somebody's life in the moment, but in somebody's life overall. And uh, and I think that's kind of the messaging that could happen. Um, I will say that when I first got into family medicine, the American Academy of Family Physicians had a motto, which was that every family needs a physician. And uh, And I still believe that to this day. I think that you know, if we focused more on our, on primary care and preventative care, um, that we would need far less specialty care than we do have. And uh, and frankly, people would be healthier. And when you're healthier, you're happier and uh, can be more successful and you can do more things. And I think that's an important message for everybody. Well, I think that is exactly the rally cry for us to wrap up on. That is that that is that is for sure the movement we want to see in the world. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here and 
sharing all of these incredible stories and insights with us. And for all of you listening, thank you so much for joining in as well. And if there's something you want us to cover, please shoot us an email at nonormal at reviveagency.com. Make sure you share this show with friends and colleagues and give us a rating and review on iTunes. We always appreciate that. And until next time, don't ever be satisfied with the normal. We want everyone out there to push that no normal, to push primary care, to push you know health-saving education, and we will see you next time. Three.